0: Welcome to the Comradorian and thank you for listening to our podcast. Our speaker is Professor Jerry Holtham, managing partner Cadwin Capital, and visiting Professor of Regional Economy at Cardiff Metropolitan University. The subject of his talk is the Welsh Economy in a Changing World. It was recorded at a Comradorian event in January 2018. We hope you enjoy it. Dear Stewart, and uh, um, I'm very grateful for the invitation to speak to the Honourable Society. Um, the, the title I've got, The Welsh Economy in a Changing World, is um, fairly daunting. I don't know whether it daunts you, but it certainly daunted me when it when was put to me. Um, the world economy at the moment is um, I think you have to say in a fairly turbulent state. Uh, we've had a this period of, um, of globalization, a period which began after the Second World War, but went into overdrive in the 1980s, where you know, free movement of capital and uh, of trade, battery of people. And in combination with technical progress in in the um, information uh, sector, and the collapse of communism, which released a whole lot of literate workers onto the world economy, has really caused enormous changes. And we've seen huge growth uh, in incomes around the world. It's been, from that point of view, a a productive period, particularly in places like China of course. But the effects in the developed countries have been much more um, ambivalent, I suppose you could say. Ambiguous. Uh, we've had wages at the top, incomes at the top rise very strongly. We've had incomes at the bottom stagnate, and indeed uh, conditions of work, security have, if anything, deteriorated. And in the middle of the labour market, there's been a hollowing out. There are fewer high-paid, semi-skilled jobs than there used to be. And that's led to a certain political turbulence. Um, we, I think you could blame... Um, the Brexit referendum on on those effects, you certainly can attribute the election of President Trump to those effects. And so I think it's leading to a certain question as to how far there will now be a political reaction, resistance to further globalization, which of course has implications for how you think about the development uh, of an economy. What I wanted to do, and, and on top of that, of course, uh, there's this fear that we're in for a new wave of automation which will take out even more um, middle-ranking jobs and, uh, and exacerbate these problems of uh, inequality that we currently see. So what I wanted to do, um, I have no, no answers to any of those problems, by the way, um, Uh, was just to do a little stock-take, where does the Welsh economy stand at the moment in a global context, and then having done that little stock-take, to present to you two different visions of how the Welsh economy should should be developed in future. Because there are two competing visions out there. When I say out there, they don't seem to be causing much of a stir. uh, it you know at, um, at Cardiff City Stadium or in the western mail or uh, even on the BBC but among that uh, uh, among the coterie of professional economists uh, there, it's causing a flutter uh, there are two competing visions for how wales should proceed and i want to present them and ask the question does either of them make sense and perhaps is there a synthesis that we could find to move forward so let's do the stock take first um, this is a database, don't worry about the bottom, I'll, I'll tell you what that is. This is a database that Professor Huggins at Cardiff University put together. He's got 450 regions around the world. And they're ranked here by an index of prosperity. And that is their GDP, um, their um, labour productivity, and their wages, the average monthly wage. We combine those things into an index. And we rank all of these all of these places um, by that index, and it goes, you know, from uh, at the top you've got um, Palo Alto, California, Silicon Valley, if you like, and places Luxembourg and places like that. And down here you've got Uttar Pradesh in India. And um, you will see, there's a kink in the middle. Uh, um, just past the red line, there's a kink. That kink turns out to be significant because. Uh, it divides you into the richer regions and the poorer regions, and what research has shown is the things that tend to move you up the ranking in those two groups are different. For example, education. In the bottom group, it's, you find the bigger the expenditure on primary and secondary education, the more you tend to move up, up the group. Well, I don't know what the causality is. Maybe you get rich and you spend more education, um, yeah, but whatever. It's primary-secondary education that is, that is associated with moving up that bottom group. Higher education doesn't matter. There's no difference between Atta, Pradesh and uh, Eliada in Greece on that score. Not significant. When you get into the upper group, that's no longer true. Expenditure on higher education is even more important than expenditure on primary and secondary in moving you up that group. So, the two groups are different. Now, the good news is that Wales is that red mark, so it's in the richer group. Uh, The bad news is it's it's very near the bottom, as you can see. Uh, And if we compare, what, what does that mean? I mean, our peers are places like Puglia in Italy, Calabria in Italy, Brandenburg in East Germany. They're places with the prosperity indices very close to the Welsh ones. If you compare them with Bridgeport, Connecticut, Luxembourg, and San Jose, California, you'll see our income is not much more than a third of, uh, of the guys at the top. Our expenditure on, um, uh, uh, I won't go there, I'll wait. So, and the same is true of labor productivity and these other measures. We are we're at a, roughly a third of the income level of, of the more prosperous regions in the developed world. Now, it might interest you to know how the rest of the UK ranks, because Wales is at 208. We're number 208 in these nearly 500 global regions. This is how the other regions of the, um, of the UK rank. And it really is quite startling. London is completely divorced from the rest of the country. I don't know whether you're probably all aware of that. But people talk about London and the South East. No, 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 no. The South East is... It's not relevant. London, the south east is at 138, is not very far away from Scotland at 152. It's London at 23, that is completely different from the rest of the UK. So you've basically got London on its own. The English region's ranking between 140 and sort of 90, And then you've got the three very poor regions of the UK at the bottom. Northeast, Northern Ireland, and Wales, all over the 200 mark. So we have extreme inequality uh, in, in the UK reflected in that global ranking. But, you know, the same is true within Wales. Our society has become extremely unequal. Um, GVA, sorry, that's a um, jargon term, gross value added, it's like your GDP measure. In Wales, that's output, if you like, per head, is only 71% of the UK average. But within Wales, The poorest regions are barely half, more than a half of the UK average, Blyner, Gwent and Anglesey. And of course such low average incomes are associated with areas of multiple deprivations, like the heads of the valleys. Um, uh, And Wales is only 40% of the London level, which is (coughs) 72% above the UK average. So this global inequality is reflected within the UK and indeed within Wales. Now, if this is a horror story, how did we get here? And I think one has to be realistic about this. For most of its history, Wales has been a poor country. Um, pre-industrialization, there was a shortage of arable land. Um, you know, Llewellyn just couldn't raise the money to resist Edward, never mind about manpower. He you know, just hadn't got, hadn't got the cash. And um, we had a period of relative prosperity with industrialization. But it was based on extractive industries, you know, iron ore, uh, slate, coal, all financed by foreign capital. You know, names like Guest, Crochet, those are not Welsh names, there are one or two exceptions. But it was foreign capital, and that left, really, with the profits repatriated, it left with the exhaustion of the, those extractive industries. Leaving, leaving us much where we were in the Middle Ages, you know, as the, as the poor and peripheral area of the UK. And more recent industries that were brought in have not been rooted and they've moved out when conditions elsewhere became more favorable. So, for example, when Eastern Europe came into the EU, a lot of turnkey plants moved off to Poland or Bulgaria because wage costs there were even lower than in Wales. And we did see a big fall in relative Welsh income in the eighties and nineties, with the final um, uh, collapse or decline, anyway, of things like coal and steel. And since two thousand, uh, we've been we've maintained a constant level of mediocrity. I think you could say lousy all the time, uh, but not getting worse. Um, if you look at, at growth rates this century, uh, I don't know whether you can read this, but if you look at the UK average, it's grown thirty-one point six percent this century. Wales has grown at 31.6% this century. So in other words, our growth has kept up. We had a period of decline. We're relatively poor. We're not catching up. We're not deteriorating. We're stuck. Um, And uh, if you look at the English regions, some are lower than us, some are higher. Scotland, conspicuously higher. London, of course, higher. Um, But the West Midlands, rather worse. And within Wales, the interesting thing within Wales is that growth rates are not, are not what you think. It, um, they don't bear any relation, unlike in the UK as a whole, to the level of prosperity. Cardiff is by far the most prosperous part of Wales, but its growth rate has actually been um, pretty, pretty mediocre. Where's Cardiff on there? There we are, 8%. Eight, eight Gwynedd, which is one of the poorer areas, has grown at 28%. So, if actually there's been a slight equalization uh, in Wales in the 21st century, the the rich areas haven't been growing faster than the poor ones. Okay, so that's where we are. We've got a relatively poor country for historical reasons, um, and uh, we have two schools of thought about what is to be done. And these, uh, I characterise these two schools of thought as one, aim for export-led growth. And the other, and this one I have to say is, is gaining ground, is to forget it. Just, I mean, that's a fantasy. Forget it and concentrate on protecting living standards in the so-called foundational economy. And if you haven't heard that phrase, I predict that you will hear it more and more, and I will tell you what I think it means. Now, so let's consider these two different visions. Suppose you were going to try and turn Wales in to accelerate Welsh growth by focusing us on as an export economy. How would you do it in the present plan? And the obvious exemplar is Taiwan. Now, Taiwan is one of the two countries that's grown in this well, since 1990 much faster than anywhere else. So you can look at the USA, UK, Germany, Japan. Japan, of course, the Fast growth story of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, but when it comes to the 90s and the 90s, uh, left far behind by Taiwan and South Korea. But Taiwan is particularly interesting because nobody talks to Taiwan. You're not allowed to talk to Taiwan if you have diplomatic relations with Taiwan. The Republic of China, uh, the People's Republic of China, cuts you off. So nobody would have to talk to Taiwan, but somehow they're growing very fast. And if you think about it, you know. Japan grew fast in an earlier era, and you know why. You could think of you know, Japanese cars, you could name Honda, Toyota, lots of brands, and then they got into electronics, and you could think of consumer electronics, you know, there was Sony and Panasonic, and, and then they got into computers, and there's Fujitsu, and whatever. I don't think anybody here could tell me the name of a Taiwanese company. So how have they, without creating big, growing, great companies like that, how have they done it? And the answer is, very interesting, they used their diaspora and they insinuated themselves into what's known as as global supply chains. This is a jargon phrase, but one of the characteristics of the modern world is that the bits and pieces that go into a product, which used to be all produced in the same place by the same company, are now produced all over the place by a host of different companies, making a supply chain to that final product, whether it's a a piece of kit or whether it's a service. There'll be inputs into it. And these supply chains, courtesy of modern technology, can be completely broken up. And Taiwan has inserted itself into the supply chain in in lots of interesting areas, notably um, into the informatics area. So if you look at the iPhone, for example, has 349 suppliers in China and 42 in Taiwan. But over 50% of the content of an iPhone, um, by value, is produced in Taiwan. And the way they did this was they started off, they went to Silicon Valley and said, "Um, you need to make your kit cheaply, we'll make it cheaply for you. But they, as their expertise grew, they went from being the junior outs- partner to whom you outsourced and started saying things like, do you know what, you should design that better. We could, uh, we could make it better if it was like this, not like that. And they became equal partners. They developed their skill, learning by doing, if you like, in practice, and, and became indispensable um, partners in all sorts of supply chains around the world. Uh, and it, so really, it, what it required was, well, next slide. The lessons were exporting is key, because if you can export, you're competitive. Uh, and, and if you can stay exporting, you're staying competitive. They used extensive networking. They used there's a large Chinese diaspora, many people from Taiwan working in California. This became um, uh, very critical in establishing these relationships. Uh, they used existing skills. They had a highly trained, um, educated, skilled, workforce to plug into these chains. And as I say, they used the diaspora turned the brain drain into a brain exchange. So if you were going to try, as a very small country that's unlikely to be able to build global brands, if you are going to try and become an export, an exporter, exporting success, then the Taiwanese way is probably the way that you have to do it. And so, you know, if, if people are holding this out as the, as the export-led path for Wales, you've got to ask the question, you know, can Wales do it? Do we have the international contacts via diaspora or otherwise? Do we have enough homegrown companies with the know-how? Do we have the policy know-how to help these companies? And of course, finally, as I was saying earlier, is the open world economy going to persist, or are we looking at the beginnings of a political reaction against globalisation that would make this path more difficult? And I think that gives you the various catches with this approach. Um, Brexit's going to make it harder, uh, and it relies on the, global, the current global uh, company persisting. We do have promising companies. Um, some research I've done at the, I uh, have uh, I've done at Cardiff Met have identified half a dozen companies in South Wales alone which have really uh, interesting. Technology and an edge, which means they could become very substantial exporters. A couple of them are beginning to do that already. But the trouble is that you know export-led growth is not going to be labour-intensive, and so the problem that you could that could emerge is that you do create uh, pockets of prosperity. Uh, but you know Regen could be booming, and there's no change in Merthyr uh, because this won't be a, a path that gives you extensive gains in employment. And of course that therefore is no answer to concerns that automation will reduce employment opportunities uh, further. And the final problem is under the current fiscal uh, dispensation, Welsh government revenue isn't very dependent on Welsh taxes. It mainly comes from a block grant from the UK. So if we caused some companies to boom the, the corporate taxation is, is not devolved so we wouldn't get any increase in corporation tax so Welsh government revenue wouldn't respond very much to this, it, a bit because of income tax but not a great deal so the pressure on public services wouldn't, be very, wouldn't necessarily be very relieved by having uh, an export led growth so those are the catches in that Approach. Now, what's the other way? And this is a way that's associated, by the way, with um, Manchester University, the Centre for Economic and Social Change in, in, um, in Manchester, with a chap there from, who's from Athlanetley uh, originally, and Carol Williams, um, have, have been pushing very strongly this, this argument. Look, they say, you know, You've got to get real. Who are you kidding? Most Welsh businesses sell mundane products in mature markets. So really fast growth, it's not going to happen. And the challenge isn't to try and say, right, we're at 70% of average UK GDP, let's go for 80 or 90 or 100, which would require growth rates of 3, 4% a year. Yeah, they think, ah, it's not going to happen. Forget it. Just think about the well-being of your population. And what improves the well-being of the population is the supply of what they call foundational goods and services like if your housing is good, if your transports are right, if the healthcare is fine, and your food production is is good and the people are eating in a healthy way, you can raise well-being. And who cares about GDP? You know that's uh, capitalist obsession. Uh, and so, how would you do this though? How would you how would you raise these particular uh, activities? And. Um, They really, really comes down to two things. One is you, the government in its procurement helps local SMEs to develop and supply these things. Like so, one of the arguments they make is care homes. Care homes are run by uh, companies that are owned often by private equity houses, trying to make twelve percent. So they have a chain of care homes and they're trying to make twelve percent. You know, ah. Why doesn't the Welsh Government build care homes and lease them to local people, mom and pop, who could run a bed and breakfast, now they run a care home. And and so, in this way, we develop our own small and medium-sized enterprises, sorry, SME, that's what it stands for, small and medium-sized enterprise, to supply things that are currently supplied by uh, international companies or companies outside who are trying to extract profit out of the economy. That's one route. And the other route is, look, we've got some big companies who are in Wales to access Welsh demand. So Tesco, you know, if it wants to access the Welsh consumer, it's got to have a store in Wales. You know, you can't do it by having the store in Housing. So they've got to be there if they want to access that market. So you've got them; They're grounded, you can squeeze them. And their argument is, you know, that, that, that the supermarkets in Wales, for example, have compressed the margins of food producers. They've squeezed them in order to increase their own profits, and that's causing food producers to go out of business, and it has a knockdown effect on farmers who can't get the price for their kit, for their for their produce. So somehow we've got to pressure the supermarkets and the big retailers to do more for local suppliers. So this is a, a thing that says: build up your own small companies to supply things that they can supply, pressurize international business to be nicer to their local, their local supply chain. And this is the Foundational Economy Manifesto. In a dismal national context of slow failure, blah, 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 we're going to create employment, build stronger supply chains and networks, and provide a more local basis, basis for decisions about how products are sourced and distributed. Um, I'll leave you to read that. Um, so there's a lot of passion behind this, um, behind this approach. But, it's got some catches as well, right? You've got to, take the care home case, you've got to get mom and pop competent to run a care home. And boosting local, small and medium enterprises to serve sheltered markets like the care home or um, things like that, isn't necessarily easier than helping more progressive, um, more progressive more technically advanced uh, small companies to compete internationally and either way you've got a problem of promoting and raising the level of of your companies the other thing is this approach you know in principle it's it sounds great but it could it could degenerate into protecting and indeed feather bedding local suppliers so services don't improve i mean for all their inequities there's a reason why supermarkets are, are ubiquitous you can buy quite good food quite cheaply and if they weren't there would the local grocer be selling you the kit at the same price probably not you'd pay more so there's a risk in doing this that you you lose the benefits of competition as well as gaining the benefits of um, of local of local production and the other question is uh, you know has the welsh government really got the leverage over it Companies like Tesco to make them uh, improve their use of local supply chains. Um, you know, it might work in Cardiff, but if you say to if you say to Tesco, we won't let you sell in Shandusil unless you do X, Y, and Z. I mean, it's got to be a risk. They say Shandusil. You know, we don't care, and just not not stay. So there's a question of how much of how practical. It is to say we're going to, ra- we're going to ask more of these companies. You can ask, but can you get them to respond? And the other point is, the final point, none of this provides any extra resources for public services. Uh, and if if developing local supply chains actually is more expensive than doing what you do now, there's even more pressure on, on, uh, uh, on the public budget. So. Uh, there are reasons to think this is an interesting approach, but, again, there are catches. Now, I was trying to think, you know, I mean, let's not be negative here. Um, both of these approaches have got something to be said. From, they've both got great drawbacks. Is there anything they have in common? Is there any, anything we, that we can extract from this? Is there a synthesis that we can that we can achieve? And I think there is. Um, in both cases, you need to foster companies that are grounded in Wales, and that's rather different from, the t- from what the Welsh government has historically done, where it's tried to bring in companies into Wales to provide employment in Wales. And the trouble with uh, the result of that is that Welsh firms are either branches of international companies or they're very, very small businesses. And what we don't have is what the Germans call a Mittelstand. We don't have a lot of middle-sized successful companies. And whenever any Welsh company starts getting to that level, it usually gets bought out. If you think about it, you know, Tinopolis, Boom, which does television production, Rachel's Dairies, oh, they all sell up. And, and then the international owners often downsize them or move the, move the activities elsewhere. So I think what comes out of all this stuff to me is that whether oriented to export-led growth or improving domestic services and conditions, Wales needs more grounded companies that will stay put and develop into medium size or bigger. And most Welsh businesses are tiny. Uh, that's uh, businesses um, employing nought to nine people, that's the first channel, uh, employing 10 to 49 is the second column, and you know, the biggest column is employing 250 plus, and those are the numbers of businesses. So that's what it looks like. Uh, that's turnover by business size, but here's more interesting. This is employment. And um, this is Wales as the polar mid- economy. Got a hole in the middle. Um, most people are employed either in the very few large businesses, so you know, this is Uh, Ford engine plant and things like that. Uh, Or they're employed in micro-businesses employing fewer than nine people. And there aren't enough people, there aren't many people employed in these medium-sized businesses. And that's, I think that illustrates the weakness of the economy. We did a survey and we asked people, you know, what stops you getting bigger? Uh, Why can't you get into that medium-sized area? And... Um, by far the biggest, uh, these are the responses, by far the biggest one is this one. Nearly two thirds of people said, we can't get the staff, you know, uh, I can operate at my current level, if I wanted to be bigger I'd need to hire managers to look after different parts of the business, I might need more technicians, I can't get them. I can't get them at a reasonable price. In this sample, there's a sample of about 45 so-called growth companies here. Um, What you see is they're already quite oriented towards business outside Wales. 76% of them sell more than 50% of their output outside Wales. 80% of them say they're going to grow in the next five years. That's the good news. Um, But then when it comes to obstacles to growth, the one that stands out uh, by far is getting qualified staff. And here's a slightly frightening statistic, I think. We asked them, have you sought Welsh government assistance? Ninety-three percent of the companies we sought to had gone to the Welsh government and asked for a grant or a cheap loan or something or other. So um you know, sturdy independence, I don't think that's what you what you're seeing. There's a, an expectation that they will get government help. Um, was it a satisfactory experience? Well, of the 93, 51 said yes, and 43 said no. But there's that, even that had an interesting uh, um, characteristic. Most of the ones who said, yeah, it was good, are companies who'd come in. They're companies who'd come into Wales because the Welsh Government was offering them a grant. This, this has had its successes. Admiral Insurance would not be in Wales if the Welsh Government hadn't bribed Englehart and David Stevens to come in with a great fat check. Uh, uh, so, it's, it has its successes. And most of these guys who thought it was good had come in because they'd been given a nice fat grant. Most of the ones who said it hadn't been good were businesses based in Wales who'd gone to try and get something from the Welsh Government and didn't find the experience satisfactory. So, we have had a tendency, you know, profit without honour and all that, to try and pull people in and not think hard enough about fostering what's there already, I would argue. And I think these results. Uh, tend to support that. So we've seen that the biggest obstacle is, is, um, is uh, skills. Uh, uh, this is a bit of research by um, the University of the West of England which showed that uh, things that influence productivity in companies is very much related to training. And um, going back to that sample we showed, I showed you at the beginning uh, of regions around the world and we compared the, the top three and just saw how they were three times richer than, uh, than you know, in Wales and places like Italy and Brandenburg and Germany. Um, I don't know if you can read this, but it shows, it shows some of the key differences between these very wealthy regions and the ones near the bottom of the rich group distribution. And the main one is, um, uh, if you look at expenditures on, on education, um, that's the last column but one, higher education. No, that's primary and secondary, sorry. Higher is where it's higher. It's the last column. Uh, you're looking at, it's a dramatic difference. You're looking at numbers three to five times higher. Uh, they, these are, the rich areas are able to and do invest much more in, in both primary and secondary, but also in higher education. That means that there is that the per capita expenditure on research and development by their companies is also much higher. That's this. Uh, that's this column. So Wales is doing quite well compared to the other poor countries at 170 90 but you know it's it's a tenth of the expenditure in the richer areas. So. If you're going to follow the export-led route, certainly um, the key thing here is you have to find a way to devote more resources into into higher education and to try and align it with companies so that it fosters their own research and development expenditure. The other other thing that's needed, as I said, when we get successful companies, they get to a certain size and then they sell out. We've got to find a way to stop that. My analogy is we're like a a second division football team. And we've got a reasonably good youth training scheme. And some of the kids coming through are going to be good. And they come in the team and they score a goal and they want to go and play for Tottenham Hotspur. And Tottenham Hotspur come in with a bid and off they go. But unless you can keep just a couple of those good kids... You're never gonna get out of the second division. So you have somehow to ground some companies so that not everybody sells out once they start getting successful. And that means you've got to find a way to let the owner take capital out of the business without selling it. And if he wants to he, she wants to retire, you've got to find a way that, 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 that that the successor, you know, managers, the MBO, or whatever it is, management buyer. Can find patient capital that will let them borrow, keep the business, and work it out, work off their debt over a long period of time. Uh, We need patient capital that supports a business for a long term without panting for an exit. And we've now got a new development bank in Wales, but it's an outgrowth of finance Wales, and that behaved just like any other routine venture capitalist or bank. When they put money in, they wanted to show they were clever boys and girls and they could only do that when the deal was closed and they got the money out. Then they could say, look, we made X percent on that investment. When the investment's in there, you know, there's, if it's not a publicly quoted company, they can't demonstrate what the return is. So they're all very hungry for what's known as exit. And in that sense, Finance Wales was no different from any other bank or, or venture capitalist. So you didn't have that patient continuity finance uh, that enable businesses to stay in words uh, uh, in the long run. And moreover, um, the Welsh government has realized there's a problem with succession. It's realized there's a problem that there are many businesses when the owner entrepreneur wants to retire, the business is, he gonna make a trade sale to some other company or take it out in works. So they, they know there's a problem. So they set up a succession fund. The trouble <coughs> is the succession fund is 50 million pounds. The most successful uh, uh, civil engineering company in Wales, uh, wholly owned in Wales, six owners, all of them over 60. The turnover is 400 million pounds. You're not going to keep them by, you know, they're going to have to float or something. You're, you're not, not going to keep them with a with a 50 million fund. So we haven't solved the problem of how to provide patient continuity finance that will keep companies in Wales if they do become successful. We're still in the situation where any of our kids coming through, playing well, scoring a goal, are going straight to Liverpool or somewhere. So I've kept you going quite a long time. Um, Let me try and pull this all together. Um, We've seen that there are two philosophies of development that have been proposed for Wales. Um, The so-called export-led growth and the so-called foundational economy growth. Neither seems likely to really much alleviate one's problems on its own. Um, the export-led approach might lead to some prosperity, but it won't lead to solving the employment problem. Um, the foundational economy risks uh, sharing out a sort of shabby gentility, so we, we need a difficult synthesis that aims to develop a, a Welsh middle stand of medium-sized companies some of which, if they've got high growth potential, could be helped to integrate into international markets, and others um, can be brought on to to supply more of these foundational services. Uh, I would argue that increased investment in higher education and its links to businesses is required to reinforce such companies. And everybody knows this. The Welsh government will pay lip service to it, it's even doing it a little bit, but we're talking about scale. Um, And also, we need better training of personnel at at all levels of of the workforce. Both types of business, the foundational business and the exporter, should have the opportunity to stay grounded in Wales. They should be able to take equity out and spend it, or or retire without the company disappearing. And this is going to require more and more innovative finance. And I don't have. you know, a blueprint. It's not easy to see how you plug this particular finance gap, but unless we can find a way, um, we're going to run this risk of, of, of the good companies disappearing. And I think a final point is um, I'm not very confident that even if everybody in the Welsh Government listened to this and said, yeah, you know, that's all perfectly true, let's, let's do it. I am not convinced that they would be able to do so. Um, and if you don't believe me, let me give you an example. Think of the Metro. Um, this is a, a transformational project. We're going to have a South Wales Metro that will link up the valleys and Cardiff and turn it into one large urban conurbation, realising all of the gains of, of, of agglomeration that we see in large cities around the world. And uh, it's going to, you know, connect people up to jobs. It's just going to be terrific. And we've been talking about it for ten years. Now, if you did it in the in the full way that its designer Mark Barry thought of it, you know, you'd have through ticketing. You'd have the metro with through ticketing to buses and and put new stations and all your housing housing planning would link up with that so that the housing estates would be near the metro and it would all be integrated. This would be a project of some complexity that would cost at least 2 billion. What kind of overhead do you think there should be for a project on that scale? How much would it cost to, to, to manage a project on that scale? 2%? 5%? That would be... 40 or 100 million pounds for a South Wales Transit Authority with the capability to run such a project. You'd hire the guy who built the Hong Kong Metro or something and bring him in as chief he said. What has the Welsh Government done? It's seconded half a dozen civil servants and hired half a dozen consultants. And that's why we're still talking about it 10 years after we started talking about it. And how we'll be talking about it, I will confidently predict in 10 years' time. By 2030, we'll have electrified two valley lines and we'll have branded it Metro. You know, the Welsh Government has to review its own processes and institutions, and it has to be prepared to let go and create executive agencies who are capable of managing the projects on that scale. While it sticks with the traditional civil service structure and attempts to maintain a close control of everything itself, I don't think it's capable of delivering either of the development strategies we've talked about. And I think that is... We need institutional reform in Wales in order to launch either of the development strategies we've talked about or indeed any synthesis of them. Uh, I'm not despairing. Perhaps it will happen. I think we're getting a younger generation of politicians coming through now who are not uh, not the ones who were there when they celebrated the bonfire at the Quangos, which um, it gave them a taste for pyrotechnics, but um, didn't give them a taste for devolution within words. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You will find more of our podcasts on comradorian.org.